Welcome to the Capital Insight Podcast with Jenny Casson and Michelle Timish, two capital raising experts on a mission to demystify and equify the world of investment for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Listen in as they sit down with fundraising veterans and share with you the success stories and cautionary tales of outside the box capital raising. This is Capital Insight. Hello, this is Jenny Casson. Welcome to the Capital Insight Podcast. I'm here with Michelle Timish, and we're so excited to be talking to Maggie Kulik. Michelle and I both met Maggie at an event back in 2020 uh, called the World Changing Women Conference, and that was super fun, and we were just so impressed with Maggie. So Maggie, uh, tell us about how you got into the world of finance. So... Yes, and this is short, so I need to tell you the short version <laughs> of this one. Um, so I'm, uh, I run a um, registered investment advisory firm called Chicory Wealth, uh, based in Atlanta, but we have clients and I have team members all over the country. And um, I got into broadly defined financial services almost 20 years ago and was drawn to it initially because it did feel to me like there were that people needed um, help in the sense of not just help in the obvious way that, you know, a good financial advisor helps people, but help from the standpoint of trying to um, align their values with how they understood their money in their own life, how they invested, um, how they gave their money away, how they understood, you know, their own obligations or stewardship to their families. I, I used to say I started out doing pastoral care with money. I have a master's in divinity and I'm all but dissertation and a PhD in early Christianity and and um, also very interested in contemplative studies. So all of those things led me uh, into uh, oddly this field of working with people and their money. And um, as my career went on, I, I, I've always had people who were very interested in trying to do um, creative and different things with their money, even just in publicly traded investments. And 20 years ago, um, socially responsible investing um, was a thing and had been a thing, but it, it wasn't a very widely recognized thing. And environmental, social, and governance metrics of looking at companies, et cetera, et cetera, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't on the radar really in any significant way at all. So uh, when we established Chicory Wealth, we went fully independent from a, we'd been involved with a, a larger regional broker dealer and we decided to go fully independent um, almost four years ago now. And when we did that, we got, tried to get very laser focused on our tagline, which is integrating money and meaning. And what we were seeing was we were getting clients increasingly interested in, in certainly investing in a publicly traded portfolio that did less harm, uh, but also interested in invest, finding ways to, to invest in their communities, if possible, finding ways to invest in um, non-publicly traded direct sorts of things. Um, uh, and, you know, my initial foray into this was extremely frustrating <laughs> because <laughs> the first thing I, you know, the first thing I encountered was um, the, 
the more traditional methodologies of doing that, like venture capital or private equity or different kinds of alternative investments, um, were A, not very um, impressive in terms of the impact they were having on communities. Uh, B, were the purview for the most part of um, clients with significant wealth. Uh, and when I say significant, I mean, you know, tens of millions of dollars, because in many cases, the minimum investments for some of these things, you know, were when I first started looking at it, you know, well north of a million dollars and seemed to be only the purview of endowments or, or foundations or things of this nature. I remember my first, uh, my first trip to SOCAP in, uh, when I moved out to California about five years ago, I went to that conference and, um, and I had just, I was trying to figure out like, well, how, how do I plug in as someone who's advising clients who are, some of whom are very, very high net worth. The majority of them are more like garden variety millionaires. Um, you know, they have enough, but they don't have enough that maybe a $250,000 minimum investment was going to make sense for them. And um, as you say, Jenny, we met at this World Changing Women's Conference. And I immediately, when we started talking and I started hearing what you were trying to do in relationship to um, helping entrepreneurs, um, many of them um, uh, women of color, find ways to get funded and find ways not just to get funded in their, for their businesses, but really not just buying into the classic venture model where, you know, the founder has to get to, you know, a hundred times return and then the company goes public and then the founder's out the door. Um, I mean, it seemed like if, if we were going to be about helping to transform how money moves in this culture in a way that is more generative, more, generationally wealth building, particularly in, uh, um, in, in communities that have been historically had what little wealth they had extracted from them, then um, we needed to not just look at, you know, investing money in women entrepreneurs in the classic VC model and stirring, but instead look harder at what the model is and how the model supports communities and how it is more like slow capital. And um, what I found is as we've become more um, engaged with that in that conversation, um, I have a number of clients who are interested in doing that. Um, and, you know, I can give you a few examples. Your um, very recently a client of mine um, was very interested in the project you guys have been, who you've launched uh, in Baltimore, whose name is escaping me. So one of you pop on and tell me what the name is again. I'm forgetting. Opportunity Main Street. Thank you, Michelle. Opportunity Main Street. And um, this particular client had a heart for Baltimore because she was originally from Baltimore and um, a lot of her family's wealth was made in Baltimore. And so investing in this project um, was kind of right up her alley. And then, you know, one of the things she, you know, she wanted to consider doing is, is 
um, using donor-advised funds. In her case, she had a significant donor-advised fund. And using some of those donor-advised funds creatively to find a way to invest in the project, which notably not every donor-advised fund platform will let you do. But the one we work with is very flexible. And so we were able to structure a note to this project. Um, and it was absolutely delighted my client to be able to be engaged in this and also in essence to have the opportunity to take money and recycle it back through uh, her donor advised fund to do something like that again so rather than just give it away instead invest it with the hope of a return that she can then use to do something similar um i will say that um uh, one of the things we talked about before we went on air here was you know have i seen trends um, amongst my clients in terms of what they want to invest in or how they want to invest. Um, I think the trend is, I mean, I, I encounter people all the time who want to find ways to invest for racial and social justice. They want to get money into the hands of um, entrepreneurs of color, and they want to get money into the hands of entrepreneurs of color, particularly those who are women. Um, and because they believe in that wealth building project. Um, I think the other, other kind of main thematic thing is anything related to sustainability and the environment is ex extremely important. Um, people are looking for those kinds of opportunities. Um, uh, I recently worked with a client of mine who um, is uh, originally from Erie, Pennsylvania, which is near where I'm from. And Erie, Pennsylvania, interestingly, as you guys would know, because you've, you've looked at opportunity zones, one of the very first groups to sign up to be part of an opportunity zone. And I know Jenny and Michelle, and we've talked opportunity zones are, in terms of the tax code, are very problematic. They're, sometimes they're only benefiting people who otherwise would just as benefited anyhow. They sort of making white developers richer to a certain extent. But this particular um, work that was getting done in Erie, uh, and if you've never been to Erie, let me just say that Erie can use a lot of help. And it's getting the help through this opportunity zone. And my client wanted to be find some way in to that. And again, very much the purview of sort of very large investors. But we were able to make the right connection to allow her to invest a chunk of money in her local community at rates that were, you know, close to market, she just felt so incredibly good about it um, because it was um, helping her community. It was helping some of the um, uh, some of the parts of the community that had been most um, devastated by the kind of economic blight that has uh, harmed those kinds of, you know, northern tier cities really since the 80s. Um, and they're working hard to get revitalized. and. Um, from my perspective, um, part of the joy of doing this, trying to find ways to do this matchmaking is a helping money flow in really creative ways and helping the people out there on the front lines who are trying to build these businesses uh, and generate wealth for themselves and their families. But, but pairing them with investors who care deeply about these things, care beyond the return um, and really uh, get a, a deep sense of fulfillment and um, joy from being able 
to participate in this way in something that's really tangible. You know, money is increasingly meta, right? It's like, it's, you, it, I mean, I was laughing. I went to, I was, uh, I, I found an old uh, a jar of change that I tripped across that I had stuffed away somewhere, you know, pennies and nickels and dimes. And I said to my son, you know, these are, these are strange artifacts. I hardly ever, I don't carry these even in my pocket anymore. I don't carry, you know, money is this sort of amorphous thing in the investing world, the publicly traded investment world is very, very removed. It's very removed from, for most clients experience of it, you know, for most investors experience of it, money, you know, the little blips on the screen, they go up and down, but for someone to be able to invest directly in someone's business and see that business thrive and give root to, uh, and, you know, uh, shade and branch really to, you know, uh, to, to a community, uh, it, it means a lot to people. I think my one frustration, and I shared this with you guys, and I know you share it as well, is how to do that, um, how to do it really effectively, how to scale that. I know you've been involved in, um, uh, opportunities where people can do that um, online. They don't have to be accredited investors. Um, I, but I think, you know, as a fiduciary advisor, my job is always to try and find a way to, to, to lead them to those investments and also do it in a way where the clients really fully understands um, what they're doing and how they're doing it and who they're investing in. And trying to find ways to do that more locally here in Atlanta would be something I'd be just, I'll just throw this out to you guys. Very interested in talking more uh, to you, both of you, about what that might look like. You are just a treasure in this space. And the fact that you have really facilitated and empowered your clients to do these values aligned things with their money, it just, it just speaks volumes of you. And there are, of course, so many things that you mentioned that we could talk for more hours about. But one of the things that strikes me is really um, you mentioned sort of market returns and talking to your clients about uh, their returns and their values. Stepping back a minute and talking about sort of the myths that are out there. We talk to a lot of people who have what seems to be sort of an outsized idea about what in fact are market rate returns. Right. Yeah. What's the starting point of that conversation? Like, what really is the reality about market rate returns? And, you know, where do people, where do we start? Well, right. I mean, that's a great point. So, um, you know, if you're comparing it to cash, for example, today, Michelle, as you no doubt are aware, uh, anything, anything that makes slightly more than maybe 2%, is um, out dramatically outperforming in real terms cash, because cash rates right now are so incredibly low. Uh, they're, I mean, they're really negative when you they're, clearly they're negative when you factor in inflation. It depends on, you know, if we took a if we take a longer view and we ignore just the most recent run up, you know, year over year inflation numbers, and we say, well, let's throw that out because maybe that's an aberration. But let's just say inflation is run historically quite reliably at, you know, two to two and a half percent. Well, you know, um, you could tie money up in a bank certificate deposit for five years and you're going to get less than, you know, two percent. 
right now. So that's, a, that's you know, as one example, now you could say, well, the cash has no risk. Well, it does have risk in the sense that it's, it's even at 2% inflation at current rates, it's constantly losing its, its uh, buying power, right? So that's an example. You know, you could say, uh, well, well, what about a portfolio of, that's maybe 50%, you know, bonds and 50% stock? What could you reasonably expect? Well, you know, in the last three years, you know, maybe you've been getting nine to 10%. But if you look at that over a much longer period of time, you're probably closer to five or 6%. Um, and that's not real return. That's not that's gross return. They've got to factor out inflation. So now you take out, let's just say it's six, and you take out two, now you're down to four, right? So, uh, and, you know, 100% stock portfolio, well, yeah, in the last three years, probably averaged, you know, depending on the, the actual mix, 15, 16, 17%, but that's the last three years. And if you really back that out and you just say, well, let's just look at the S&P 500, as an example, you're probably closer to 8%. And then you got to factor out inflation. So now you're at six. So um, yeah, so to your point, well, what are you hoping for, right? And, and those are just monetary returns. I think you would hasten to, uh, both you and Jenny would want me to add, there are other ways of measuring return besides financial returns. Um, community quality, um, equity. Uh, uh, if you're if you're making an investment in your neighborhood or your hometown or your area, that you know, quality of life, human flourishing. I mean, there's you know, friendship, connection. I mean, there's a whole range of things that are actual lived human returns that we don't do a very good job of. Uh, quantifying, but we know it when we see it, don't we? And so, um, you know, the other, the other knock, if you will, on, on any kind of alternative investment. And when I say alternative, I mean, something that doesn't have a ready access market where it's easily sold and turned immediately into cash. Um, so things that are not publicly traded stocks or publicly traded bonds. Um, or, uh, yeah, I would, I would say the, those categories, that hyper liquidity is an, is an advantage uh, to some extent. So, I mean, the, but, you know, you have to factor in how patient you are with the capital. Most of us have actually, you know, significant amounts of capital that we don't really need immediate ready access to. And so being willing to invest in something and have it be, uh, you know, a five-year or a 10-year time frame hold. Um, I think people shy away from that because there's always this concern about, well, what if I really need the money and I can't immediately get liquid from this investment? You know, that's just a function though of just understanding your full financial perspective and making sure you have sufficient liquidity. And the vast majority of my clients have significant liquidity and could be tying up fairly large percentages of their portfolio if they so choose for longer periods of time. So all of those things factor into any investment, liquidity, time frame. when are you going to need the money, how much are you going to need, what's, what's the expected return, et cetera. But I do think to your point, 
or the point I think you are going for is that there's usually some overblown sense of what quote unquote market rates actually are. So, right. Yeah. I would agree with that. And I'm glad it's funny you said that because we had another guest uh, who's also a financial advisor and she came out with, you know, her estimate of what is market rate was very close to what you just said. So yeah, yeah. you, you all yeah. who are in the industry, you're kind of more realistic than those overblown uh, promises that that people sometimes hear. But, you know, I would love to hear, I think one of the things that you are a real master at is helping people, like you said, kind of be almost like a, a pastor, give pastoral care to people around their money. And mm -hmm. you have a lot of clients who are pretty wealthy. Mm -hmm. um, and I would just love to hear for those of us who aren't super wealthy or don't have a lot of, don't know a lot of people who are wealthy, like, and I know you can't generalize, but what are some of the things you hear, some of the pain that super wealthy people may have around their money and and how does changing how they invest maybe help the those pains and fears and worries and guilt maybe that they have around what's happening, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what's right. going on with their money? Well, I mean, I definitely have some clients who um, feel, so a few different examples. Um, some look at the sources of their wealth and are not... And they they feel most of them have gotten over a sense of shame and are moving on to empowerment. But I think there is for some a sense of, you know, particularly amongst clients who've inherited a big chunk of money, where did the money come from? And was it was it was it justly earned or was it extracted? Now we could go down a really interesting rabbit hole about whether or not there is there has ever been any money earned in the Western hemisphere that wasn't extracted, <laughs> okay, at some level. <laughs> um, it, when you contemplate the, um, the DNA of this country, there's, it's very, very hard to find extreme amounts of wealth that didn't have some extractive aspects to them. And when I mean extractive, I mean both extractive from the earth and extractive, extractive in a pretty negative way from the from the labor. Uh, this isn't 100% true, but there's there's a lot of that. So I think that there's um, the, the people I encounter who have significant amounts of wealth, particularly that they have inherited, folks that come to work with us are looking hard at what that means and looking hard at how to um, uh, mm, I, the term that's coming to mind is almost repatriate some of that wealth and um and some of them do it with a lot of charitable giving uh and what i have been doing with some of them is trying to encourage them to not just use charitable funds because there are a lot of very interesting things going on in the for-profit universe um, where a lot arguably as much or more good can be done by actually investment not in not in a gift, but in an actual investment. And um, so I do think they, I, I think the people I've talked to, uh, you know, I can think of a few that are, are very committed to trying to find ways to 
um, shift the power imbalances by shifting their money, shifting their money in lots of different ways. That said, they're still human beings. And so everybody's enoughness is going to be different. And um, so I have seen people get really close to doing that and then get nervous and back away. Some innate kind of like, oh, I don't know if I should do that. Oh, you know, it's, you know, and so, I mean, part of my job is, is helping hold them accountable really to the, to their vow, to their, their stated values and what they say they want to do and help them sometimes get over the hump of actually doing it. Um, so, I mean, it's not, uh, it, what's interesting, Jenny, is that it's often my smallest clients that really have the heart for this and want to find ways to do more. And, um, uh, and that, that's the group that I feel like there still must be better and more creative ways to get them involved in some of these things in their own communities. And that's, for me, that's still the creative edge of this. Because, you know, I, yeah, I have clients who can make a $100,000 investment or a $50,000 investment or a $250,000 investment or a $500,000 investment. And they want to do it and they want to do it for reasons that relate to their values and for moving forward an agenda, particularly, and again, the hot topic absolutely is working with women of color specifically. That is real. And they also, some of them, um, you know, still have this voice in their head. Well, I want to make sure it's a good investment. You know, they want to understand it. They want to know what's happening. They want as much, not really control. They just want some understanding of it. And I've got clients with significantly less wealth um, who are always looking for ways to pour that wealth back into their community. And sometimes I've, you know, depending on the community they're in, I'm more or less connected. So this is why like you guys are such a great resource because you are out there in a sense, finding, you know, people to work with. And, um, and then it's just a question of like matchmaking on our side. And um, I feel like this whole idea, this whole movement where people are trying to invest in real things, where investors are trying to put their money, you know, in real businesses that they can see and feel and taste and with entrepreneurs, they can, you know, understand and know somewhat. I think that's a trend that is gaining strength and will continue to gain strength. Uh, and I think it was going to appeal to, I, I already know it appeals to also people of a younger generation. Um, we're increasingly getting um, younger clients who want to do that and they want, they want to live out their values as best they can in the public markets, but they're very interested in this other, uh, this other area as well. And so I, you know, for me, it's always just trying to continue to learn yet more and I'm, you know, and connect with you guys and, and others like you to see if we can make that, you know, really bring that to a kind of tipping point where it's a much broader thing than it is right now. Yeah, great. And along those lines, Maggie, about bringing it more forward and making it more mainstream, what what are your thoughts about the financial services industry? Because I know it can be very it can be very difficult 
for advisors, you've obviously chosen to dedicate yourself to this, to this because you, you know, you're passionate and you want to enable and empower your clients. But we talk to a lot of people whose financial advisors really don't want to hear about any interest they might have in a percentage of the portfolio going to some level of direct investing. What do you think that is the is the path forward for the financial services industry to facilitate this kind of investing? Well, you know, I mean, it's only been in the last few years, you know, there's been a lot of studies done that clients are significantly interested even in you know, environmental, social, and governance, publicly traded investing, and advisors in general were way behind the curve on that, you know, even where it's, it's should be pretty straightforward, actually, you know, you've got a highly liquid market, you've got good data, um, there are ways to create portfolios that have really strong screens, etc. right? And they were still couldn't get that done. But the issue with with alternative non-publicly traded investing, Michelle, to be blunt, is an issue of compensation structure, first and foremost. Sure. So, um, and and I think the financial services industry has got, um, they put the cart before the horse a long time ago because it was super easy money to have someone give you a chunk of money and for you to run a fee over top of that chunk of money at 1% or 1.5% or sometimes as much as 2% and, um, and get paid. And as long as the client didn't move their money from you or outside of that brokerage account, then you got paid. And um, so anything that would involve money leaving the building into anything immediately bumped up against or does immediately bump up against the potentially the um, advisor's compensation. So they're in a conflict. And um, one of the ways we've addressed this is we, uh, we've gone to a flat fee and full disclosure for our new clients, I still have a lot of clients who are on the old assets under management uh, structure. But for any new client coming in the door, because we realize this is a conflict and because we want to be able to advance this other way of doing things, and it works for a lot of different, not just this, but you know, should I pay off my house or should I buy rental real estate or whatever? We we now charge a flat fee that is um, based on income and net worth and is no longer runs on AU assets under management. So that if the client, whether the client's investing in real estate or some form of alternative direct investment uh, or has money in a donor advised fund or whatever, or is investing in a portfolio that we manage, we're indifferent because we're being paid in this different way. We're being paid in a, it's, you know, it's, it's the fee is what the fee is annually. And it's based on a very particular metric. And we look at it every two years and that's it. And I think that that's, um, it's not only that advisors are leery of this, it's that they're, 
you know, if if your financial incentives run counter to it, you 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 gotta ha- you gotta be really passionate to get up and over <laughs> and figure out, well, how do I help how do I help my clients really do this thing? So, you know, uh, I think we're gonna see a lot more of the way people who are doing the business we're doing this sort of financial consultancy or financial advising, financial life planning is what we call it, how they get paid. I think that structure is going to change. And and I think the marketplace is going to demand its change. And I think we're seeing that already. in again, our younger clients who are very comfortable with this and not at all comfortable with the classic assets under management format. So, uh, yes, we are starting to meet some advisors that are doing something similar. It's still not common, but I'm so glad there are some of you that have been willing to be pioneers on that. Well, and you know, Jenny, we didn't know how would, how would new clients react? Like, will this work? Uh, and it turns out it's worked great actually. Um, now sometimes people are like, wow, that seems like, you know, when you quote them the annual fee, because you're doing a certain, and, and you know, they're like, wow, that seems like a lot until you compare it to what they don't realize they've been paying. Uh, yeah. Right. right? <laughs> because nobody's ever bothered to break down what the actual dollar amounts are. Um, and so, yeah, so far, so good for us. It's been, it's been a successful move. So I'm so glad. So just to wrap up, let us know um, any tips that you might want to share for someone who, you know, does feel some pain around what their money is doing in the world and maybe where their money came from and want to make some kind of reparations or repatriation into things that will make them feel better about what their money is doing. You know, what would be some good ways to start to, to start feeling better and doing better things with your money? Well, I mean, I would say start by engaging it, you know, I mean, everything begins with the first step of like addressing it. And, and I would say, you know, believe because there are, you know, there are ways um, to do good work in the world using the investments that you, if, if you are an inheritor, for example, um, you know, there, you got a couple of options. You can, you can ignore it and just let it continue to do perhaps the evil it's been doing, or you can take the bull by the horns and maybe, you know, maybe seek counsel from someone who can help you that you, you know, can build a trusting relationship with and um, find ways to over time, make incremental improvements. I mean, I think one of the, um, you know, one of the frustrations uh, I, I have this, you know, voices ringing in my head where I've encountered people who basically are like, the capitalist system is so screwed up. There's just nothing good about it, you know, and, and I, I just really want nothing to do with it. And that is, um, I'm willing to take the, uh, take the critique of that. But I would just say, you know, the old adage is perfection is the enemy of the good. And there's, um, to do nothing is to do something in essence. And so, you know, engaging and, you know, and finding resource, there are resources out there, you know, we exist, you guys exist, others like us exist. And there really are people who are doing their best with, you know, with humility and integrity um, to try and uh, 
you know, use their money in the creation of a more just and equitable world for the betterment of all of us for real. And uh, it's not just like a, you know, a slogan. And so I think, you know, believe that that's possible and take the first step. I love it. Yes. And, you know, all these little tiny acts that we're all doing, they do add up. And I, I was just reading something posted by the Zebras Unite community about how tiny acts eventually do add up to a tipping point. So we need to keep doing these small acts. I shouldn't say tiny. Some of them are bigger than others. Yeah. But we're, we're doing these acts that will, will eventually add up to a tipping point. And I do also want to add, Maggie, you're very humble. You didn't mention your book and your workbook. I went through your book and your workbook. They are a really great resource also for people who want to Thank you. you. Know, get more conscious with their money. So we will share uh, details about that in the show notes. Thank you. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. And any last words you want to share, uh, words of wisdom that might help folks that are just starting out on the journey? Yeah, well, I mean, to those of you who are who are founders of new creative businesses, kudos. It takes a lot of courage to do that. I founded my own business. It takes a lot of courage. And, you know, no plan B, just keep going uh, and believe. And to those of you who, yeah, are, are um, realize you have more than enough and you want to find ways to use the money and the service of your values, those, those ways are out there. Just reach out. Um, reach out to me, reach out to Michelle, reach out to Jenny. We will help you find your way and, um, and we'll continue to learn together. I just... You know, and we're sitting here. What is it? We've got a, what is it? The COP, is it 26? Is it year 26 conference win on the, on the climate? Right. I think that's and, right. Uh, you know, uh, we've got a lot hanging in the balance. We all have to do our little bit, whatever bit we can do, we've got to do it. Um, so I would just, you know, keep getting up in the morning and figuring out how to take the next step. That's it. That's what we all got to do. Got to be in it. Be in it. <laughs> do you have any questions for our securities lawyers and capital raising experts? Call the podcast hotline and leave us a message at 866-552-7726, extension 5. You can also send other inquiries to podcast at jennycasson.com. We'd love to hear from you. Music for the Capital Insight podcast is still searching by Damon Criswell via Audio Hero. Thank you for listening to Capital Insight with Jenny Casson and Michelle Timish. Until next time. <laughs>